0: one of the challenges with reading a book like The Letter to Timothy, and I think um, Chris was sort of, you know, grappled very bravely with it last week. One of, one of the challenges is you read a passage like that, and there's a temptation to stop listening. Um, it's quite fascinating. At work at the moment, I changed jobs recently, and my, my job now is focused on Essentially, one-on-one training of individuals in, in our business. Um, we're calling it coaching along similar lines to the way that footballers or tennis stars are coached. Someone like Venus Williams, for example, or Serena Williams. Um, they are absolutely at the top of their game, but they keep having coaching. They keep having training. One of the reasons why we're thinking of doing that in our business is because we employ people to manage money, to make decisions about what to invest in. And one of the things that's become very clear over the last few years is that human beings are not very good at making decisions. We're not very good at thinking. A lot of the time we don't think. And I've been reading a book by a guy called uh, Daniel Kahneman, um, who interestingly, given what James was saying earlier, is actually uh, an Israeli. um, So there's a subtle sort of link there as well. But um, He's a psychologist and he writes about how people think. And he talks about what other psychologists might have called the unconscious and the conscious. Um, But he's talking about the things that we do without thinking and then the things that we do when we think. And a very, very simple example is the way that we make up our minds about people or things that we're hearing at the start. I had a shocking experience yesterday when I caught myself doing this. Sue and I were wandering around Lewis, going around the antique shops in there, and there was a guy there, and he looked, he looked quite unwell. He was, he was quite sort of small, he was slightly shabbily dressed, he was very pale, quite drawn. Um, but stereotypically, he looked like a bad person in a film or a play. If you were drawing somebody who was going to be a thief or a bad person, you might draw somebody who would look like that. So as soon as I saw him, I thought, if I was the shopkeeper, I'd watch him very carefully. So he will probably slip something in his pocket. I don't know him. I've no idea what he was like. He's quite possibly the pastor of his local church. He might be a leader of a great charity. He might just have got back from Syria feeding refugees. He might have come to the antique shop to give them his 20 million fortune because he just wanted to give it away. But that's not what I thought because I didn't think. I just reacted. And that's what we do all the time. We can't, we can't not do it. It's a survival instinct at its very base. The only way we can deal with it is to try to catch ourselves at it and then think, And you'll find that sort of uh, dynamic throughout the Bible. Peter saying we have to capture our thoughts. We have to bring Christ into our minds and allow ourselves to think like God, not react like fallen and broken humanity. So that's a long way of saying when I read Paul, I tend to react and not think. So when Paul says things like... um, Here is a trustworthy saying, if anyone sets his heart on being an overseer, he desires a noble task, I tend to start thinking, why is Paul addressing this to men? What I don't think about is what Paul is actually saying about leadership and what we as all Christians, irrespective of our gender, should be desiring from our relationship with God. So if, like me, you stopped listening halfway through Karen's reading, apologies, Karen, um, now's the time to get your Bibles out and have another look and start thinking. Now, like Chris last week, um, I'm not going to tell you what to think. That would be wrong of me. It's not my position. It's not actually the way that I like to try and behave. I find it very tempting to do, but I'm going to try not to do that. As a body of Christ, what Jesus wants us to do is to talk to him and use other people around us as help meets to do that, but ultimately to relate to Jesus. So hopefully, in spite of the fact that I'm doing this sort of the talking, you can hear Jesus and relate to him and talk to him about it. And if there are things you disagree with that I say, then blame me and not Jesus. Let's have a look. So I thought it might be quite helpful to start with the creed. And again, this is a bit uh, along the lines of what Carl was saying this, uh, at the start of the service. And, and I have to say, um, you know, Carl and I didn't talk about this beforehand and a huge amount of respect uh, to Carl for his courage in just sort of joining a church and then allowing the people who've previously been talking to just carry on doing it without um, without really finding out what's going to happen. Now, that requires an enormous amount of faith, not necessarily faith in me, but faith in God. And my experience of being involved in churches is that if the people involved in the service are listening to God, God produces a good service. Here's another Sunday to test whether that's really true. So I thought we'd start by looking quickly at the creed, Remember what Paul is doing here. It's always worth trying to think of why. Why is Paul writing to Timothy? What's it about? Well, Timothy was very young. He was pretty inexperienced. He was in a very difficult church situation in a very vibrant and difficult city. So Paul is trying to give him some help when Paul can't, because he's in chains, he's in jail. So Paul's aim is to help Timothy with regards to how to run and organise a church. That's what the letter is about. Now, you should always read everything in the Bible in the context, through the lens of Jesus, because that's our current reality. So we have to start with Jesus and then go to Paul, not start with Paul and then go to Jesus. And if we start with Jesus and we start with what the church has concluded about Jesus through um, a long period of sort of debate and prayer and fasting and seeking God's counsel once Jesus had died and rose again, the church concluded these truths which have been packed into various different shorter or longer creeds. We say the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed or things along those lines Um, in some of our services. And at the heart of Christianity, these truths, we believe in one God. But unlike any other religion around the world, there are other monotheistic religions followed by people in the world, but Christianity is the only one where we say God has three persons. God is a trinity. One God But three facets, three characteristics, three persons embedded in that trinity, in that one God. Now that's quite a complicated idea. Um, People like Roger Forster have written quite short but very readable books about it. Other people have written much longer, much less readable books about it. But the basic concept is the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit are all one God They're all equally God. There's no corporate hierarchy. God the CEO, Jesus the chief operating officer, and the Holy Spirit is the IT expert, or something like that. It's not like that. It's three persons, one God. That's one central truth of Christianity. So that's a key thing we need to hold on to. We believe that that one God, God became man. And we have met the person of God, through Jesus. Paul had an encounter with Jesus. The disciples, Peter, James, John, and the others, they met Jesus the man. Jesus the man was fully God, but was fully man. And as a man, he died, and as a man, he rose again. And we believe that this fact of the act that Jesus died and rose again has made us right with God. But we also believe there's one final element to that that although that is a fact that we are made right with God we have to choose to accept it. And that's the grace of God. That's what ultimately gets us into a right place. So God has laid it out for us but we have to accept the gift. That's what the Creed says. That's a short version clearly and it's not nearly as poetic as the, as the ones that, uh, that we tend to say in the service. So what does the creed not say? Let's have a look at the next slide. Um the creed tells us nothing about how to organize our church. Should we have pews? Should we have chairs with soft seats? Should we have a toilet inside the church or outside the church? Should we have children's work? It tells us nothing about that. It tells us nothing about the roles of men and women. And it tells us nothing about how literally we should take the Bible. So if you believe those three things on that previous slide, but you do not take the Bible literally, you're at the far end of the sort of fantasy church spectrum, you can, I think it might be a struggle for you, because I'm not quite sure how you'd get to believe those three previous things, but you can in theory still be a Christian, because the creed, what you need to believe as a Christian, does not actually have to do with the literalness of the Bible the historicity of it it has to do with your acceptance of Jesus now you're going to have to listen very carefully to what I'm saying here because you may already begin to feel sort of ooh, ooh, don't like that listen to what I'm saying I'm saying there are some very simple things we need to be believed to be Christians and then there's a bunch of other stuff I'm not saying that's not important but I'm saying it's other stuff now Chris suggested Paul's letter leaves us with a choice and I thought that was a very interesting way of putting it and I, and, and I think, you know, I'm sure if you talk to Chris he would say that there's a complicated sort of spectrum but the two logical ends of the spectrum are that we we adapt how we live to match up to a first century letter or, or indeed if you want to take the whole Bible that's obviously a sort of, you know, a book stretching back a couple of thousand years prior to that potentially or We take the collection of those books, including this first century letter, and we try and work out how to apply it in the 21st century. Now, there are challenges and risks with both of those approaches. If you take the Bible completely literally, that's very simple, but it creates all sorts of challenges in terms of living in the 21st century. I won't lay them out. You can have a think about them if you want to. If you decide that you are going to live in the 21st century and interpret the Bible accordingly, that creates all sorts of risks as well. Because there's a danger that you're not starting with Jesus, you're starting with the 21st century. And you might start doing all sorts of things as a result of that and believing that all sorts of things were uh, indications of sort of godliness and Christ-like behaviour, if you start with the world as it is and you try and bend the Bible to fit it. Now, I haven't got an answer for you. I'm still struggling with finding the answer myself, if I'm completely honest. But that, that is a question that you do need to answer. But I would suggest as well, in humility, that your answer might not be my answer, and my answer might not be your answer. And really, as Carl was saying at the beginning, I think one of the things that is essential in the time that we're living in is that as Christians, we seek Jesus and we seek unity in Christ as the first things that we do and we respect each other in our diversity. And if we can't do that, and the church has shown very poor ability to do that over many, many hundreds of years, if we can't do that, we will not be able to function as the body of Christ, which ultimately is what we're called to be. Let's have a look at the next slide. So what I thought would be probably most useful out of this passage of Timothy is to try um, and pick out some of the things that I think that are applicable to all of us, however we fit on that spectrum of interpreting the Bible, and whatever we think about some of the other things that Paul was saying, what can we pull out of Paul's letter to Timothy that clearly applies to all of us. Well, Paul is talking about leadership. Now, again, because we're human beings, we tend to handle leadership in a very bad way. Think about the Israelites. When the nation of Israel was first established, did it have a king? We read about Saul and David. When when Israel was first established, did it have a king? No. Established Let's say it was established well by Abraham and then through to Moses. It didn't have a king. It had prophets. And it had tribal leaders and heads of families. It was some sort of anarcho-syndicalist commune, if you wanted to use technical language. It was not a democracy. It wasn't a monarchy. It was just a group of people who sort of wandered around together with their sheep and their their camels and whatever, um, and got together if they needed to fight others and then fought each other if they didn't need to fight others. But they were desperate for a king. You may remember the story of Saul being selected. The Israelites campaigned for a king. And Samuel said, God doesn't want you to have one. It will be bad for you. They said, we don't care. We want a king. Every other nation has got one. We want a king. That's symptomatic of the human race. My experience of small groups, large groups, corporations, churches, family schools, people want leaders. By and large, they don't care whether they're male or female. They just want leaders. Why? Because it makes it easy. If somebody else does some of the thinking for you, sets the direction, it's really helpful. Now, sometimes that's lazy. Sometimes, actually, it's, it's, a, it's a genuinely good thing. It's helpful to have somebody who brings all the ideas together and says, right, okay, this is, this is what everybody said. This is what we're agreeing, so let's go and do that. Things tend to happen when you've got leaders. They tend not to happen when you've got anarcho-syndicalist communes. But let's remember, go back to Jesus. How did Jesus lead? That's the key model for leadership. And that's what Paul is referring to here, I think. He's saying, if anyone, and let's just check that, if anyone sets his heart, if anyone wanting to become a leader desires a good work. Now that's not saying, oh, you want to be a leader. You want to be an elder in the church. Okay, here's an exam. Here's a test. Here's a course. You have to go on before you can be qualified to be a leader. It's not what Paul says. Paul says, if you want to be a leader, that's a good thing to want. So if you turn that round, I think you can probably say, without stretching it too far, that we should all desire to be leaders. We should all desire to exhibit leadership characteristics. Because that's being Christ-like. Jesus was a leader, and we should want to be like Jesus. Once we become like Jesus, that's when we start to influence other people. And that is clearly also what Jesus wants us to do, and what Paul wants us to do, and what Paul wanted Timothy to do, and what Paul was desperate to achieve across um, the early sort of uh, early Roman Empire. He wanted to draw other people to Jesus. He says elsewhere that he wants all men, all people, all humanity to be saved. God's not exclusive. God doesn't have a list of the people he wants and the people he doesn't. God draws everybody to him, but unfortunately, he's relying on us. As part of that process, so I think we should all desire leadership characteristics, we should all desire to take on leadership roles. Now what does that mean? Does that mean that um, we should all desire to take over from Karl and lead the church to great things? No, absolutely not that's that's again that's the human interpretation of leadership. What it means is We should all desire to hear from God and be willing to give out once we've heard. That's leadership. So you're in a small group situation or you're in a church situation like we were sort of earlier this morning when, you know, Carl said, if you've got things to speak out, then do. That's taking leadership. That's quite scary. That's not what most of us like doing. But if God is stimulating you to do that and you're already aspiring to act like a leader then you will be a little less scared and a little more willing to lead by sharing a picture, sharing a word, by praying, or by going up to somebody afterwards. You just go up to somebody after a a service and say, you've been on my mind, can I pray for you? That's taking leadership in a Christ-like way. And the Christ-like way is also if they say, no, that's fine, thanks very much, you walk away. You don't just lay hands on them. So now I'm going to assume leadership now i am got to praise you. That's, that's weird. That's not Christ-like leadership. So we should aspire to be leaders like Jesus. Now, just as an aside, and again, I'm not really going to say very much about this, but you'll sense sort of where my thinking is coming through. I think we have to be careful when we read Paul about taking his criteria for sort of leadership too literally. Compared to Jesus... So, was Jesus married? So, compare to Jesus, think about Jesus as a leader, and then I would read Paul to extract the characteristics of leadership that Paul is highlighting, rather than starting with Paul and saying, this is the definition of a leader, now I'll build a leader to look like that. Because I think we risk ending up in the wrong place. There are many people across the church who would disagree with me on that, And Sue and I have certainly been in churches, been members, signed up members of churches um, where the church sort of doctrine and practice was based on a very different interpretation of Timothy. But my view now, and I think my thinking on this has changed over time, my view now is that I would start with Jesus and read Timothy's letter to Timothy in that context rather than designing my church the other way around. But like I say, that's what I think. And I wouldn't necessarily want you to to think the same. So you have to take Timothy's letter away and read it yourself and and grapple with it. Um, And just again, as an aside, actually, an encouragement really, Carl, to you. Um, We had a a, a fantastic sort of house group meeting um, on the Tuesday after last Sunday. And a huge um, vote of thanks to Chris for sort of opening up uh, that Pandora's box because we had a wonderful time sort of grappling with it um, in our house group. And I certainly learned learned a lot through that sort of that debate and that prayer. Um, so I thought it was a really useful and, and and helpful thing to do. Again, examples of Christian leadership being exhibited in that home group. Different people taking the lead to help them help us as a group move forward in our relationship with God. Moving on. So so what can we learn? Just a couple of bits to to pick out from here. Um, I counted through, and I think respect is the key characteristic that is mentioned um, throughout this passage. And I was also very interested to note that it includes the respect of people who are not in the church. Now, respect is something that is earned. I think we all recognize that through our lives, that you can't just go and demand respect. And, and that the way that the passage is written in, in our particular versions of the Bible um, Talks about uh, where was it? It was um, managing families and see that his children obey him with proper respect. There are other sort of ways of translating those words that basically give the stronger impression that you have to earn the respect of your children through your behaviour. Now again, translation is hard. You can pick and sort of you can you can work out different ways of of what the Greek words mean. Um, My experience as a father is that demanding that my children obey and respect me is an absolute hiding to nothing. Um, They know me far too well for that. Fortunately, none of them here this morning to even begin to explain why they won't just obey and respect me automatically, but, you know, you you get the picture. So my sense is that in a family context, and certainly know this in a work context, and it's also true in a church context, you earn respect. And how do you do it? Well, as a Christian, you behave like Christ. That's how to earn respect. And it's quite clear throughout the Bible, including throughout all that Paul teaches, that the way that we earn the respect of people who are not in the church is by behaving to them in the same way that Jesus did. So I think respect is one of the key features of Christian leadership the other thing to bear in mind about respect is that you earn respect by respecting others and respecting others includes respecting their views and the way they think and the way they approach things i didn't say how to agree with them but you have to respect them and you have to treat them in a way that shows that that's what you think and again it's about loving Our neighbours, not all of our neighbours, are people that we would agree with. Some of those neighbours are in the church. But we're called to treat people with respect in the hope and expectation that we will become respected. The other thing which I think is interesting, and again that's come through some of the things we were sort of singing about this morning, is that... And James particularly goes very strong on this. You know, what's inside is expressed by what you see on the outside. You don't define people by what you see on the outside, but it's a good starting indicator. Now, again, veering slightly into politics, and I apologize if you disagree with my sort of political stance on this, but I was struck by the fact that Donald Trump swore the oath of allegiance on two Bibles, not one two Bibles, that's got to be double as good. One of those Bibles is his. One belonged to Abraham Lincoln. Now the fact that Donald Trump brought his own Bible to uh, swear the oath of allegiance, you would hope is a strong indication of his Christianity. I will judge Donald Trump's Christianity on what he does, not on the Bible that he holds. And so we'll see. But I think that's a very important feature of us to continually bear in mind that how we actually behave is a very good indication of our inner spirituality. So, going back to the sort of way I behaved yesterday in Lewis, that's not that encouraging. The fact I caught myself at it is perhaps an indication that Jesus is at work somewhere. And I didn't jump on the guy and shout, Hey, you thief! That, that clearly would have been behaving in a really unhelpful way. So, Jesus says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind, and love your neighbour as yourself. And he said, "Those on those two laws hang all the laws and the prophets. The whole of Deuteronomy and Leviticus all the Judaic law summed up in that. And that applies to us. We're called to love God and we're called to love our neighbours as we love ourselves. Next one. Now, I thought it was just worth very briefly touching on the link to Holocaust um, the Holocaust the day and again. I mean, Carl hadn't sort of prompted me to do this. So I think it's, it's encouraging. God is speaking to us about this and and I was touched and moved by what James was saying about the, the sort of links he's got to people who experience this. Um, we had a very interesting presentation at work the other day about a guy who looks at history um, and tries to then forecast where things might go. And He believes that history goes in cycles or follows a rhythm or a pattern. And he sees parallels now in today's society with the 1930s. Now, I'm not sure whether he's right. I think it's always very hard until after you've gone through it, to go, oh yeah, it was quite like the time before. Um, but I think there are some interesting sort of insights in what he has to say. And one of the things that really struck me when I was doing some, some work at, at work and I was sort of randomly searching the internet, so, did you know that the Nazis insured Auschwitz? They had a policy against damage by fire with a German insurance company. Now, just think for a second what that means. That means that there was somewhere in Berlin or Frankfurt or Stuttgart or wherever, an insurance clerk who was quite probably not a Nazi, who might well have been a leader in his local church. I'm I'm making all this up clearly, but you can imagine a good, holy, righteous insurance clerk just doing his job and writing an insurance policy on Auschwitz, and that that really struck me because I work in the financial markets and I can sort of just imagine somebody just doing that. Oh well, I'm not sure what this is about. I'm not going to ask any too, too many questions. You know, I want to. It's a Friday. I want to get that sort of 5:30 train rather than being another sort of hour late. My boss wants it done. I'm under a bit of pressure they're thinking you making redundancies so I'm just going to sign it off people throughout Germany did that good people righteous people, people who wanted to be like Jesus because one of the things that was so horrible about the genocide in, uh, in Germany was that it was an industrialised process, it was a process that captured the whole nation Suffice to say that if we are leading in a Christ-like way, we will need to be among the group of people who do something and not nothing. Loving us cost Jesus his life. That's Christ-like leadership. And we need to be aware that that might be the cost for us. Just a couple of things to finish. We say this verse in Matthew um, a lot in our services. Let your light so shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. That's what Paul is telling Timothy. He's saying, earn the respect of those around you. Live your life. Surround yourself with other people who are living their lives intentionally like Jesus so that more people can be drawn into a relationship with Jesus. So that's our calling. We're called to love our neighbours and to live as examples. And if we do that, we will earn their respect. And if we do that, we will lead them to Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you died for us. We thank you that you rose again. We thank you that through your grace we are saved. Lord, we pray that you will help us to grow more like you, to know you more clearly and love you more dearly, so that as we live in your light and in your example, that we can draw others to you in Jesus' name. Amen.